with a with a quick question. There's a, a couple of quick questions. Broad strokes here. When you looked at your work this week for First Kings chapter one and chapter two, what did you big picture? What did you see going on in this in this record? God is speaking. <laughs> he said, "Amen." <laughs> so, what what is it that you saw going on? How would you describe what's going on in these two chapters? Okay. And you thought <laughs> it did look. You know, I kept thinking, wouldn't this make a wonderful movie? <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be a great if somebody would actually take the time to go into. Uh, these kinds of records and actually develop them into a, a visual movie for us, that, that would be really awesome. Okay. And yet they didn't. Boy, can we make application to that one. How many people in our lives have done that? I mean, how many times have we seen that done in the people that we know in our personal lives? And for that matter, how often have we done it? Well, doesn't God say don't swear by me? Yeah. Well, yes, but, I'm, but it, it has to do, it's another, that's a whole other conversation. But he, what God wants is your yes to be yes. Because you have integrity and uprightness before him, that you're a truth teller. Because we are particularly, those of us who are in faith, are created in him, his image and we, we are being transformed into the image of his son. And so truth telling is supposed to be a fundamental basic. It's just a one-on-one. No, they did not. So that is, brings up a good point, Margaret. What does that tell you then about the people of this nation called God's people? What, do, what is this, what are the activities that you saw going on throughout here tell you about this group of, this collectively, this group of people? Yeah. There's a chance that some of them didn't know God's word at all, right? They, or, or if they knew of it, and, and, and certainly they were exposed to it. I'm not saying they didn't know, they had never heard it. I'm just saying... They, they were not intimately in knowledge of it, and certainly not in a way where they respected it or wanted to obey it or, or bow their knee to it. The, word, the, the God of that word that was coming through for their prophets, for instance, was not being respected at all in their lives, right? Um, okay, so we see one of the things I wanted to point out right away is the literary work that we're working in because some of some of you have come in and expressed a little bit of frustration about you know not knowing exactly it was brenda and she's left she needed to hear this get back here brenda <laughs> but she needed to have a better handle on how to really even handle this kind of work so what is the literary work that we're in what do we what kind of it's a historical record. So when you are working in a history book, how are you to, to try to take it apart? What are the fundamental pieces to historical records? Keep people, keep events. Okay, keep people and events and places. and places. Okay, so with that in mind, then, when you begin to mark your key words in this book, what kind of comes to the surface for you as key people? Who are the key people in 1 Kings 1 and 2? 
David and Solomon. Okay, come on, you guys can do a better job pronouncing those words. No, just kidding. <laughs> those words were tough, weren't they, those names? How many of you shortened, um, Celeste and I were talking on the phone, and, and Abishag, right? I call her Abby because it was just short, you know, Abby. Um, but there's a lot of them there, difficult. So Abishag was one, David and Solomon, obviously. Um, who else? Joab, he became really strong, and and... Bathsheba in chapter 2 comes up. Adonijab. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to say this, this Adonijah. The reason I pronounce it Adonijah is because the word Adonai is, a, is another word for God. And then you add the Jah at the end. And I, I did not take time to research that word or anything about it. But I do know Adonai. And you all do too. And so after a while, when you st if you start seeing that word and just notice the word Adonai in there, that's why I pronounce it that way. Now, that does not mean I am pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> that's just the way I handled that one, okay? But I started out at Adonijah. Adonijah, that's how I first started out. And then I, later I went, no, that's Adonai in there. Okay, so we have Adonijah. Adonijah. And we have um, Shimei is another one that comes up. Okay, so once you've marked all your major key words then, or your key players in this, that those are your people groups. And, you're gonna, and you made a list on those. And one of the things you saw was in day three and four, Kay has us go in and do a little bit of research on each one of them to try to put them in, in, in a contextual understanding of are they good guys or bad guys, basically, right? All right, so that was helpful, and it, and it just kind of touches on the tip of the iceberg here for us, but it does get us started. One of the other, now when you, a second question I have for you besides the sweeping big picture that it's a historical record. You're looking for people, places, and events, right? Um, did you find any major themes running through this particular two chapters? Loyalty is huge. Loyalty became a, a real evident either problem or, or attribute that was either rewarded or, or there was a distrust that was left behind for those who were not. The character of a person, exactly. Whether or not a person would be trustworthy or not, right? Very good. Yes, power struggle, big time in there. The idea that, to me, and in that power struggle, who did you really see the struggle being against? God himself. Because in these records that we are looking at, it was God who made the determination as to who would be in those position, that position of power. And yet the people who were opposing it were people who obviously had no respect for God, Right. Oh, yeah, big-time consequence. Boy, I tell you what, this, this the, the lesson for life that Kay talks about in this particular homework, they, they were huge. The idea of consequences and uh, what kind of consequences are, potentially are there long-term, even generation after generation, for people when they do right or wrong, either way, right? When uh, there was a couple other things, Any, anything else? The, div, lots of division, lots of in, in bickering. How hurtful, you know, it's really one thing when the world attacks you, 
especially I was th I'm thinking about the storyline of David, um, and even also Solomon, though, for that matter. You know, but what what about when it's within your own family? And the people that you've grown up with and that you would hope you had built relationship with and there, there was to be a, some kind of a foundation of love within a family, and they are the ones that are attra uh, really attacking you the strongest. I think of... Um, David with, with his son Absalom, whom he apparently loved deeply. And Absalom came after him in, in really venomous ways to kill him, right, to destroy him. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. So the, this in-bickering in between families, on one, on one hand just on the family level, but secondarily then on a political level. Wow. You brought it right forward then, didn't you? Yes. Okay, very good. Did anybody notice the, the suggestion, too, also, as you go through about wisdom? The idea of wise counsel versus poor counsel and who you're listening to in your life to help guide you in making decisions, right? Okay, well, I want to start with very quickly with a reading that's just going to, I think, set the attitude. Because one of the things that we did was on day three, she had us look at James and look at the word wisdom there, right? What were the things that you learned about wisdom from your little mini-study in day three? Go back and take a look. It's on page 11. Well, actually, it could be 10, sorry. And on page 10 of your homework. So she had us mark the word wisdom in that particular passage and do a contrast or a comparison of the two kinds of wisdom. So what did we see are two different kinds of wisdom that are supposed wisdom and true wisdom? Okay, the two contrasts are earthly wisdom and wisdom from above. Regarding wisdom from above, what insights do we have about that kind of wisdom? So would you say that that in any way describes most of the wisdom that was going on in the record of chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Kings? Was it gentle? Was it peaceable? Was it, was it full of mercy? What, were there good fruits out of it? Was it peaceable? Did you notice Bathsheba's question to Adonijah when he came in? He said, she's, what was the question she asked him? Do you remember? Do you come in what? Do you come peacefully? And what was his answer? Oh, of course I do. So right there, what do you see is the problem with that answer? It's all perspective, right? The, uh, obviously, Adonijah did not come in peace, although he said he did. So he just flat out lied to, to her. Um, when we look at wisdom, then in uh, James chapter 3, what it does is it clearly lets us know that there are two kinds of wisdom that people in their thinking have. And would you say that when you work with the world today in your life daily, that you see that there's a real truth reality to this? That there are people, when you have conversations with them, you, it, is, it becomes really clear to you really, really quick whether or not they have a godly wisdom or whether they have a worldly kind of wisdom. Um, I just want to read to you this passage now. This is in Proverbs chapter 2. 
And I, I've read this before to this particular group, but it's been many years, so I'm going to read it again to you because it goes on to, I think, m more clearly develop what true wisdom from above really is. And it's all going to be known to you, so it's just a refresher course. I'm going to give it to you real quick. Starting in verse 1 of Proverbs 2. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. So wisdom is what? It's a discovery of the fear of the Lord. So I think that's a real fundamental difference between the kind of wisdom that comes from above and the, and the wisdom which is from the earth. The wisdom from above is, starts, fundamentally starts, first and foremost, with a fear of the Lord. And he says, then you will discern then that fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Okay, to attain the knowledge that not only of who God is, but the kind of knowledge that God says is, is true wisdom for you to live by, to operate by, is so distinctively different from what the world teaches us out there. The world says, view this world from the perspective of, of the things which are tangible, the things which are which I have reasoned through in my human thinking and through, through my own personal experiences. And... To, to me, what God is really wanting for us to do is to, uh, again, be, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants you to know his word and know his ways and know how he views wisdom so that you will not try to use your own earthly values and your own earthly experiences to filter what real wisdom is for you to apply things in your life when you're trying to make decisions for your life when you're trying to figure out how to handle a person or a situation going on then in verse six for the lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding he stores up sound wisdom for the upright he is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice and he preserves the way of his godly ones then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. I'm going to stop right there. It goes on after that and it, 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 uh, it talks about the way of the evil. Well, we know all about that. I want, and we're going to be looking at a lot of that this morning as we go through these first two chapters, the way of the evil uh, and of people who are evil in their heart, people who, are, who have rejected or resisted or make attempts to thwart God's will, God's way, God's wisdom. And then we are going to see a stark contrast between those who love God, trust God, and are, are at least attempting to walk with God. Now, one of the things that I don't think I have to point out um, possibly, but I'm going to, and that is, would you say, thinking back on David's life, that, that he totally had wisdom handled? <laughs> Were there times when David's life, he made some pretty big mistakes, right? Yes, he did. So, so... When you consider that God calls David a man after his own heart, right? And God chose David 
from a very young age, and he, he anointed him through, through the prophet to be king over Israel. So my question to you is, to have a, a leader who is truly anointed and chosen by God, is that based upon how well we see his life morally lived out? Can you make that application today in the leaders that we have today? Would you say that that principle, that God doesn't choose a perfect man to be his vessel and tool, versus what you think a man should be and want a man to be, should we have high aspirations for our leaders? Absolutely. Should we encourage and want our leaders to walk righteously and be that? I heard, I heard a, a sermon um, this past week, a, a man who was speaking about a previous election, and he said, well, I chose this man because he was the best of the choices that I had. It was not that um, I supported him or the faith system that he came out of. This particular, I don't want to go into who and why because I don't want to get there, but I'm just saying that he said, no, I don't, I don't like his faith system, but of the ones that I had to pick from, he was the closest one to godliness, to godly values, to principles that God's word promotes, right? And would you say that is what our responsibility is in the world, is to try to get as close as we, if that's the choices that we have, that's how we are to vote, right? Find the one that lines up best with God, correct? Not what you hope, not what you want, maybe, but at least as close as you can get. And I think there's some encouragement in that, just to know that God does not require that his tools be perfect. Does that make you feel better? Yes. Carrie. There you go. Absolutely. That's right. When God puts somebody above you, mm-hmm. then when you disagree with him, he takes it. That's right. And, 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 you know, it doesn't mean you can't change. Absolutely. Change, but it has to be that you maintain your relationship and you uphold your position. Yeah, you, when you go back to James, it says it's peaceable and it's, you know, and it's upright and it's, you know, so there's a politeness, right? We've lost the, the political, in the political arena anyway, uh, the, the way to approach a problem or a matter. And there's a proverb about that, that there's a, a way and a time to approach things. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So in other words, two wrongs don't make a right, correct? So, so when people are aggressive toward you and toward the things that you believe doesn't mean that you, you know, retaliate, so to speak. That's right. Hopefully they do, and that's, that's the drawing factor to a real Christian life is the light that we demonstrate, the love and the peace. But it also does not mean being a pushover, and it does not mean not stating 
the things that you believe as truth. Because if you're not going to if you're not going to speak truth and declare it to the world, how are they going to know what truth is? How are they going to if they're if what does it say about the feet? the feet that come upon the mountain, who will hear if they don't come, right? So you have to also, there's a balance, right? There's a balance in there. Okay, so we are ready now, I think, with that platform laid out, some of the, you can see some of the, the depth of how much there is to try to cover. Obviously, we are not going to get into, be able to get into all of this, but I have a couple of things brought out, life lessons as we go along in this, but what we want to do, I think, for right now, because we're at the beginning and what we need is a good foundation of figuring out who, what, why, when, and where we are, <laughs> because we're lost, right? We are trying to figure out some of the, the, the people and the players in this, and so that's what we want to do right now. So what I think is the best way to handle this um, is, um, you know, with with um, New Testament epistles, one of the most important things you can do is mark your keywords and make your lists, right? But in historical books, what do you think is the right way to approach it? Timeline. Pardon? Timeline. Timelining would be a number one approach, and we did that last week a little bit, just a tiny bit of a timeline to kind of get your parameters down, okay? And... If you're not marking key words, but you're going to mark something else that's key, and what's that? Your events and your people. That's right. So we are going to focus on the events and the people in here today. As you can see, I marked key people up here as a column. We're going to try to uh, hit on some of those. Those are day th uh, four and five of your homework. But to start with, I think the best things we can do is go through and get the flow of events, the flow of thought that's going on in there. So one of the things she asked you to do is to, to look for and title your paragraphs, right? To title your chapters. When you looked at chapter one, let's start there. Big picture. What do you see is the major event that's taking place in chapter one? And let's give us a, a title to this particular chapter. And they call it, oops, that's dried out. Hmm. And they call it a theme. Maybe it was the board. Ooh, that's nice. Good marker. Okay. Theme. What is our theme for chapter one? Yes. There you go. That's really good. Adonijah thwarted, and uh, Solomon was made king. Is that correct? Is that what you said, Glenn? Okay. All right. Very good. So, and anything that's close to that, is there anyone who came up with something that's really totally different from that? No? Yes. That was very clever, Lisa. <laughs> Game of Thrones is how Lisa titled it. That is hysterical. Very good. I love those clever titles because you know what? You don't forget them. The Game of Thrones. That, I like that, Game of Thrones. I might have to put that one on my worksheet there. Okay, so the major theme, though, is about Adonijah. He is one of the key players in here. And he, what did Adonijah try to do for himself? To exalt himself. A coup, and I use that word in my titles, too. Actually, I, I repeat that over and over, that he attempts a coup. Okay, and then the, but then the balance to that in the ultimate end is about Solomon, correct? And what happens with Solomon? 
He is anointed king. Okay, so that gives us our major title for the book. That's ultimately that it's about the fact that in the end, Solomon is anointed king. Okay, a couple of verses you can pick out for that. I chose 45 for my, t- my reference for the fact that he was anointed. There's several other ones that you could look at. And in verse 5 on Adonijah, I used verse 5 where it actually very clearly says that he tried to exalt himself. And interesting, when you look at that word exalted, what does that conjure up in your thinking about him? Self? Self-seeking? Anybody who wants to to uh, basically take something that's not theirs and thinks that they have the right to do that, what, what kind of qualities do you think about in this man's character? If we were going to make a list on his character about just from this one statement alone, what, would, what kind of words? Self-centered? Pardon? Oh, disloyal. There's a good one. Disloyal. Entitled. I love that. That's a current events word. Entitled. No humility. There you go. I thought about arrogance and pride. So there you go. Exactly. Okay, so now, we're con- now we've got a good start where we're going to go from there. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go chapter by chapter and just try to uh, figure out the major things that are going on in here. And we'll, we'll discuss as we go along what we see Ver- and, and try to iron out any questions that there might be on this too. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 4. That'll be our first paragraph. What did you see was going on there? <laughs> David needed a nurse in his old age. He, it said on there someone that would keep him warm. So what does that tell you about what's going on with David? Poor circulation. He's getting old and his circulation is poor. <laughs> so they find this beautiful girl, through, they, but they very interesting. They searched throughout the territory for this woman. Now, why would they do that? In, in a, under what circumstances do you generally see them searching out uh, throughout a territory for the king, for somebody? For a bride or a wife, exactly. And so in this regard, I, do be- I personally do believe she was a wife. She was brought in as a wife. However, they are very careful to mention that he did not cohabitate with her. So this tells you that there was no intimacy that took place between the two of them, right? Um, Again, all that does is further support that he was ill and that he was elderly, correct? As a matter of fact, later on in chapter 2, when Solomon is actually put on the throne, David does something but he does it on his bed. What was it? He bows down to Solomon after he is made king. And the fact that it says, and he did so on his bed, tells you what? He couldn't leave his bed. (laughs) That's exactly right. So that just shows you how elderly he was and how ill he was at this point. Now, Susan had a question earlier about why did they have to search? Is that what your question was? Why would they have to search for this woman? That's right. That's exactly. Couldn't somebody else have stepped up? Think about David in his life. And that is true. You're absolutely right. But at this point, he's how old? So old that he's not even able to get out of bed. So how much time do you think has lapsed since the last time he wooed a girl and took her as a wife? So how, No, I'm just, ask, I'm just asking a practical kind of a question because it's going to lead somewhere. How, how much time do you, would you imagine? 
10 years, 15 years, maybe probably before he had picked out and sought out his, his previous wife, more than likely. I doubt there were any wives in between there, right? Okay, so in, does anybody know why they would pick a Shumanite woman? And the fact that she's going to do what for him? Help keep him warm. Now, just think about the, the uh, um, what do you call it, medicinally. What, did, what was the purpose of a woman doing this? Did anybody do some research on this? Or read, read any commentaries that gave you some insights about why they picked a, this young woman and brought her to his bed to keep him warm? Okay, well, one of the things that I read, just in passing, um, happened upon it, really. It, was, it wasn't something I went looking for. I happened to just read it, and I thought, oh, that makes sense. They had a belief, and they still do, as a matter of fact, doctors even today will say, that there is a, a uh, the, actually, it's like the, the breath of life, so to speak, is given to the elderly through the presence of youthfulness. And so her physical presence with him laying in his bosom and literally even her breath next to him give, helps to give vitality and strength to the elderly. Yes? Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. Oh, I never, I did, I didn't never. No, I never, I didn't hear that. See, I didn't, st I didn't get there. So that's interesting. Okay. But the reason there's a, a young girl brought into his bed is simply to, is, is for medicinal purposes. It's to give him warmth and, and circulation for her. I'm sure that she probably, you know massaged his shoulders and whatever it made him feel better it was it was it was a nurse they actually title her as a nurse in this and so that's the, the purpose to the Shumanite woman and the story in here what do you think that that much information the little bit that they gave you that she came in as a nurse that she was young they searched for her they brought her in and you're right why couldn't they have used one of the other wives so you have to kind of put all the pieces in there together and come to a conclusion about what was going on with David he is very elderly, and he is approaching death. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure. She, yes, and she would have to be in order to qualify to come into the the king's bed. So, but what they do indicate is that she remains so, right? And so that was also an, another point that was brought up. And I think that just again it accentuates or it reinforces your knowledge of how old David was. Okay. Yes. 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 Okay. That was going to be my next point. So uh, Lois sent me a very interesting link where you can go on Bible questions. You can go and ask the, ask the Bible man kind of a thing. And one of the points that she brought up I thought was really good. Would you like to share, Lois, what you learned about this setup that we're looking at? You are Abishag. Mm -hmm. yeah, and um, something I probably would one time, <laughs> but no, I've lost connection. <laughs> um, and it was about 
said that in the days of the royal time, taking possession of a king's concubines was a declaration of one's right to the throne. Okay. This had been one of Absalom's methods when he led the coup against David. And yes. Then I went down further and it talked about the tension between Adonijah and Solomon for long standing. And Adonijah was older than Solomon, therefore under normal circumstances and lines of course Solomon should have sung. But God promised that Solomon would be king. And Adonijah had already attempted to set himself up as king while David was still alive and when David was notified of the plot, he quickly made Solomon kingship official. And then I jumped down to the end and we're talking about blessings for today and I just thought it was a that this was a synopsis that really hits where we are today. It says, lessons can be learned from this account. First, it is clear that a struggle for power can cause people to turn to deceit, violence, and lawlessness. Wow. And since God is the one who ultimately appoints rulers, not people, and serves as consequences for sin, and we are called to submit to God's will and to live contently for God has placed us in life. What does it not? Absolutely. Lois, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I, this is exactly, you know what, though? This is exactly what the inductive Bible study process helps you to learn that you can do this. Is kind of, have you ever seen people with a new phone in, in our generation and they don't know that every question they have, they can Google it? And so they don't. But every time, after a while, you keep saying, now Google it, now Google it. And after a while, they go, oh, I could Google this. Well, so you're at a point now in your process of precept, you're going, oh, I need to know what this is. So guess what? I'm going to research it or Google it. Yes, Glenn. Yes. And Judah. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. This is where I wish in some ways maybe we should have started with the Samuel books and moved with the beginning of David's and moved forward. But the series that's set up with precepts is not set up that way. They have you start with series one, which is... Absolutely. We're going to... I'm glad you brought that up. Who's in the su southern tribes? Yes, and within the southern tribe itself of Judah, there was a split. So there's actually a three-way split going on here. The, the north and the south of Israel split, plus within Judah, Adonijah came, or um, um, David's other son, Absalom, came against David, and there was a split in the, of the southern tribes. So David had his hands full to try to reunite all of these pieces of the, of the playing. That, again, also brings us forward to today's world that we're in with all these splits that are going on in America, and how are we going to possibly pull us all back together and try to glue the pieces together so that we become, again, one nation as far as at least patriotically, right? Yeah. Yes, that's a really good one. I like it. And, 
And Lois, let's send that one out when we do our notes this week. Just attach it to the bottom of my chart somewhere, my chart pages, or on the email itself. That'll work. Yes, Susan. So I have to ask how Bathsheba could be so ignorant of... All of these things. Good question, except that I... I just have to believe that somehow in this storyline, the way it's set up, either Bathsheba understood what was going on and she went to present it to Solomon in order to be this catalyst, or she was just so outside of it. You know, you got to remember who Bathsheba was, too. She wasn't really brought up in the courts. She was a wife of, a, of an army man previous to David. I, I don't know. It, it's a good question, Susan, and I had that question myself. Okay, but... Nathan. Well, by by protocol, because she yeah. was the the mother queen, right? Yeah, yeah. Who was the queen again? Um, was Solomon. Well, I don't know at that point. Sol Solomon. Yeah. Well, she was the mother. She's just the mother. That's just the yeah. And that's a whole nother study we could get into is the hierarchy of of how things are set up and what the proper protocol is. And I do think that as we went through our lesson this week, we saw a couple of scenarios that were contrasting one another with something that gave the appearance of, right, that that was correct, but then what actually occurred in a proper coronation and appointing of a king. And they're, they're at odds with one another in the, in the things that actually took place. So that's another subject that comes up, yeah. Yes. Yes, he was God's prophet right. for Nathan. When I marked my key words, I marked David blue. He, I gave him a blue crown, and when I marked Nathan, I gave him a blue horn. So that way, I had the king and the and the prophets kind of matched up color wise for myself, and that way I could see who would follow who in this that it's just a little trick i'm going to see if it works it may not but i'm going to attempt it uh was there another point somebody okay Well, that's true that there would be warring all the days. Now, yeah, I don't know if that if that included the internal warring or not, but yes, absolutely. A lot of what we see in um, in the unfolding stories that we are going to be looking at is con the consequences and the far-reaching con consequences for different kinds of sin and how they do impact people outside of your realm. How many of you have had conversations with people who says, well, it's just my life and I can do whatever I want with my life and it doesn't affect anyone except me? And they're going, yeah, exactly. Anybody who's had a teenager has heard that. But I've even heard it come out of the mouths of other adults who just want to say that my sin or, quote, my choices for my life and my body and my world and my whatever, it's just between me and me, and it affects no one else. But is that a truth reality? No, it, there is, it is never a truth reality. Truth is, the life choices that you make, whether you are a good citizen, whether you are a good parent, whether you are a good wife, whether you are, are you know, 
good at whatever your relationships are, you know, within your family groups, all of those things, and I mean good on God's standard, right? If you are good in those ways, those have far-reaching effects. They can propel people to greatness. They can propel people into holy living themselves and into lives that are bearing fruit, which is righteous under God. Or the opposite can be true. A person who plants seed, you see, what does it say? You sow what you reap. You reap what you sow, I should say. I got it backwards. <laughs> yes. It reminded me of Eli. When we went back and looked at Eli, I almost could make a comparison there. Eli was a lot, in a lot of ways treated his sons in the same way that David handled Absalom. For, you know, one of the things when you all went back and looked, let's, let's just start there. We went back, and I don't know if we did this or if I just did it, but I'm going to take you there because I thought it was interesting. David's sons are listed in 2 Samuel 3. Let's look at that first. 2 Samuel 3, 1 to 5. It's just a real short one. But he kind of gives you a little bit of a list. It just kind of, again, gives you some boundaries, and we want to st- set a few of those. And somebody look in uh, chapter 3, 1 to 5 of 2 Samuel and tell me what you see about his sons. Who is listed there? Pardon? All the sons that are born in Hebron. Now, what was going on when he was in Hebron, when David was in Hebron? Does anybody remember? Yes, he was running from Absalom, who was who was a, who was uh, coming against him, right? To to not basically, he was vying for the what did you call it? The something of thrones, the Game of Thrones. It was the Game of Thrones again, right? Exactly. Okay, so let's let's list the ones that we see there. We see Amon listed as the firstborn. Amnon, rather, I'm sorry, Amnon. And then we have somebody named C-H-I-L-E-A-B, right? And then we have Absalom. And he is the thirdborn, right? And then the last one is Adonijah, or Adonijah, right? And he's the fourth. So this shows you the four, and they are born at Hebron. And what that tells you is what? Where is David at in his career as a king? At the beginning, but he's not yet fully taken on the kingship, right? He's not moved into the castle. He's not moved into Jerusalem. He's not secured his, his position there yet. So he's living in Hebron. Probably the family life is a little more low-keyed on a daily basis, right? And there's probably good interaction between him and the kids. And although um, what Kathleen said was he, he wasn't really a father to uh, Absalom, but what he was is an indulging father, probably, is really the better way to say it. Not that he wasn't a father to him, because he loved him deeply. There was a deep relationship between he and Absalom, an indulging kind of a relationship, one that said, I don't ever want to say no to my child because I want him to have everything. And why it is that he affixed on Absalom, I don't know, but any of us who have children, what? It was the story of Absalom and Yes, yes, yes. Right, that is part of the storyline. 
That's exactly right. And that's a whole other one we can go into a lengthy conversation on. So there's so much history back here. All I really wanted to do, though, was to kind of show you the, the, the names of the children, the order in which they are born, because one of the points that's going to come up later is the fact that, that uh, one of the reasons Solomon felt threatened was by uh, Adonijah was what? He was born after. The order of the, of the birthing of these children matters. Why does it matter? So really, uh, Yeah. Right, but what we don't know because we haven't researched it is where, is, where are these other two boys because they're not even really mentioned in anything that we looked at. We aren't going to go there because we just don't have time. But what we do know is we start with Absalom and then Adonijah and then comes after that Solomon, correct? He tells us later in, in our King's Record, uh, chapter 2, that Adonijah is older than him, right? So we know that after Adonijah, then Solomon is born. Okay? And that's just as far as sequential of order and, and why this is, was a, th a specific threat to him. It just is another little tiny piece of the puzzle. And so now you have that information, right? All right, now what we want to do is move on then to the next, this, this paragraph titling that we were looking at. So when we look at verse 1 to 4, we see the first thing we see is that uh, it says David is old, right? Let's see if I can title these here. Okay. First of all, David is old. And then what? And, and the nurse is selected for him. So we're going to give her a name, Abishag. Whoops. And Abishag is selected to serve the king. And what we know by that statement is that, that she is considered a wife, even though they mention the fact that they, that they are not intimate with one another. And... It's interesting to me because there's some arguments about this in, on a few different uh, commentaries. But the point that they mentioned that there's no intimacy tells you that he, had, that he was married to her. That there was a, a wife relationship or, at least, or possibly a concubine. But at least a, that was a, an expectation that could be there. And they wanted to clarify that he was so old and weak and incapable. Okay? All right, so they make that mention. So that's the first four. That just opens up the book for us in one to four. Now the next paragraph is five to ten. The next part of the storyline introduces to us who? Adonijah now. And what do we see Adonijah doing? Pardon? Yeah, he exalts himself to, to basically to seize that throne. <laughs> no, he seems to be very uh, weak in, in some ways in this particular area. As a father, he doesn't have the ability to tell his children no. And if we wanted to camp out in that, if you were teaching a parenting class in a Bible study, this, this would be an excellent course of study for somebody to say, you know, what potentially as a parent are 
the consequences for you not telling your child no, for you not disciplining your child, right? And we can see right here that, that there's a big problem. Now, in this storyline in 5 to 10, there's two groups that show up as a contrast in this particular record. We want to make sure we get them up there. Um, who are the two players that are given to us here? Okay, we see a, a group who is supporting who? Adonijah. And a group who is what? Not supporting Adonijah, right? So let's put on here support. Adonijah. And we've got a list of names, and they are who? Joab and Ab Abathar, however you want to pronounce it, yeah. Okay, and the contrast, they do not support. And this is kind of a nice little lift, list to start with because it does definitely give you um, some boundaries to start with about who might be good guys and otherwise. Okay, so we've got Zadok, Benai, Nathan, Shimei, and somebody named Ray. <laughs> That's good. And they are considered, and the mighty men. And of course, then they just show that there's also a collective group of people who are who are behind that. So these are the leaders of those mighty men, okay? All right, now, on day two of your homework, then you, you went in to look at this subject about, about wisdom. All Israel knew that the Lord had chosen Solomon to be the next king, correct? We went in and we looked at Second Chronicles, and you looked in chapter 22, 28, and 29. What stood out to you in there as far as how much should the people have known? Especially when you're considering um, Adonijah, Joab, and Abathar. What, what was made known to them previous to this? When we went back and looked at our research to see historically what had happened in the past, what did you learn? We see later him going back and forth, he, yes, okay, so they hit inconsistencies with Joab. But I'm asking the question, what did he know that he should have known? In regards to supporting Adonijah and his desire to seize the throne, what did these people collectively, what did they all know already? Yes, there had actually been a calling of, in a ceremonial manner where he gathered the people and he spoke to all Israel, it says. You know, obviously they didn't have TV or CNN or any of those big news stations in that day. But in the manner in which they accumulated for these kind of big announcements, he had called all Israel and there had been this, this very broad, very pronounced a, a um, declaration that the next king would be who? Solomon. And who had chosen him? God. Even though it's very interesting, because when you look in First in Kings 1 and 2, it keeps saying that David chose him, right? But really, who chose him? God. David was simply on board with God on this, right? 
All right, so that's an important point on when, you, when you look at this particular list that's given to us in these particular paragraph here of verses 5 to 10. Okay, um, one of the things I thought about in, this, in life lessons, here's a couple of questions that kind of came to my mind as I was looking at this. Um, you know, one of the things that happens in here is, is he closes this by saying that, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet Benaniah, the mighty man, and Solomon, his brother, when Adonijah gathered these people. Now, why did he gather the people? He had a party. And what was the purpose of this party? Was there, uh, do you think there was some kind of a statement? Okay, he was making a statement of some kind that said, I am declaring that I am going to be the next king. It wasn't exactly coronation because a true coronation requires what? The anointing, and in the case of Nathan later, what we see, Nathan actually does a, a proper coronation by doing what kind of an anointing? Where does he get the oil from? From the ark, right? He, from, the, from, the, from the tent of meeting. He goes to the tent, he gets the, the oil, and actually does a coronation. And then there were some specific things that, that they do also that also added to the strength of that actual formal coronation. But here, this is just the appearance of. He's given the appearance as if he is a, going to be the next king in this. So I thought it was interesting then that... that in this particular supposed you know, declaration of his kingship, there are certain people that he left out, certain significant people, right? And in my heart, what kind of came to my mind was this for life lessons. Have you ever been excluded from an event because they knew you would not approve or go along with it? Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Have you ever been invited to something, and once you arrived, you knew you should not be there? <laughs> yeah, um, what did you do? Or what do you wish you had done? And that could, I'm not actually wanting you to have to answer these out loud unless you just really want to share. But, you know, I can tell, you, tell you, you that through the years of my spiritual walking with God, there have been times I've done it right and there have been times that I've done it wrong. There have been times when I've been excluded, but then there have been times when I've been invited, I've showed up and I'm going, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here, Right? Or I should leave. And then the question is, where is your spiritual backbone to stand up and to, to actually exit the room? And you can do so gracefully without saying a word. Or do you need to make a statement? Right? Those are hard questions. And everyone has to kind of face those. I think some of the harder ones, are, and I've had a personal experience in my family life recently that that this one really hits home for me. Not being informed and not being included in, in, a, in a major situation because they knew I wouldn't approve. And then later kind of blaming you because you wouldn't have approved. <laughs> You're horrible because you wouldn't have approved. And so this is the scenario that's going on in here. And when this goes on in the inner workings of a family, and this is what this is. This is David and his family and his children. These are brothers and cousins and uncles and aunts. And these are family members. And the hurtfulness that can go on, the, the terror, uh, the, the breaking of, of family units that's going on in the storyline, if you actually 
don't stay up here on this level, but can draw yourself down into feeling some of the pain of what was going on with these people and the struggle that they were having to want to try to hold on to family, and yet there's a decision that has to be made, and what is the decision ultimately? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really yes. But the other thing is, is it helps me see godly people have ungodly children, and ungodly uh, people uh, can have good children. That's right. So that's you certainly, yes. I mean, I think about Saul and his son Jonathan, who went into covenant with David, and Saul had a heart that that was very dark, and that the Lord eventually abandons him, and and brings him down and then puts David in. And yet Jonathan ha had a heart that David wanted to have covenant with and they did have covenant with. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good consideration to think about is the idea of c coloring hearts, good or bad, e black or... or I mean, it could be a divided heart. I mean, it can get complicated. And, and here's, what can you not determine whether a person is good or bad based on is individual events that can occur in a person's life. An individual can be good and do bad. We see that in David's life. So how do we scripturally make a determination about whether a person is good or bad? What do you? What is it that you're going to look for in Scripture? Ultimately, obedience, fruit in their life, or declarations. When God says, "And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord," who said that? God. So, yep, black heart. And even though that person may be considered by the common people good because he did some good have you ever known people who i'm just going to pick on the pastors because they get picked on all the time have you ever known a pastor who pastors a church and it turns out he's a bad guy and he ends up having or committing adultery and leaving his wife and leaving the church and running away with the secretary we've never heard that story before right <laughs> ever so and when that happens then what how would you color his heart because if you're looking at his behavior, as Glenn brought up, you're looking for the fruit in his life, right? But did David do that? David did do something very similar to that. So in Scripture, I think the way for us to be safe on making those decisions is wait to see what the declaration is by the one who's speaking for God or by God himself. In these Old Testament books, particularly with these rulers, God actually often makes the declaration, he did good or he did evil, right? He walked with God or he did evil in the eyes of, of the Lord. David is after his heart. Very good. So we now know where David lands. He's got a nice, pretty red heart because he has a heart after God's, right? And I think in these storylines that we're looking at today, we're going to see some demonstrations of why David is considered a man after God's heart. Some of the things he did at first, I looked at them at first brush and went, man, he's not taking care of business. This guy is not handling things. He's passing the buck to the next guy, right? 
But, but then after I looked at it more carefully, especially when you enter into chapter 2 and you see him giving his advice to his son who is going to now take over the ruling, you begin to actually see the wisdom and, and the heart of David in this. So, yes, Margaret. I was wondering, what, what's the significance of the stone of whatever that is that Adonijah chose for, to, uh, for everybody to meet there? Did you look it look it up? I looked up? it up, and it just, I mean, all I found it was a, called the creeping one, the sliding one, or the, the sloping stone, but I didn't look up why he would choose that, and it looked to me like he would choose something that, that would be religious. Which verse are you in? Okay, Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoleth, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers and his, oh, so forth. Okay. Okay. And the fact that he did not actually go to a sacred location tells you what? Yeah, he didn't care. So it gives you another little peek into his heart. It's not super declarative. You have to research it out to see what's the significant imagery that's being given there to you as far as information is why. To me, the fact that they named it by name and told you where is an is indication that what it's doing is in a subtle way giving you insight into that person. So we're getting insight into the heart of Adonijah right there by the place that he chose to go and do his sacrificing. And, uh, you know, it's subtle. It isn't direct. Obviously, as we keep going in this, we can look at Adonijah's life in a bigger way, and we can tell whether he had a good heart after God or whether he did not. But that little point, why, is, why did God do it? Do you think God did it on purpose? Do you think he deliberately said, I want you to record the location and the, and the place? I know. So when you research it and you find out that this was not a sacred location, shows you that he felt that that was not a significant or important thing to do. To me, it just gives an additional little insight. That's all. It's real small, right? It's like not that big of a deal. It's just, but it's just a little more, a little piece of the puzzle. Okay, let's move on to the next part here. 11 to uh, 40 is how um, Kay in her, in her teacher's guide that she broke it down. But I broke down each of these paragraphs more specifically. But 11 to 40 on the whole is about the plot that was spoiled, basically, and how Solomon then was anointed king, correct? On the big point. But if you want to look at this, since what we were just talking about is the idea of wisdom, you know, um, how James described it, and she had us looking at that. Those not invited by Adonijah were those who he knew would not oppose, uh, oppose God or David. He isn't going to invite Nathan because he knows Nathan's going to call him on it, right? Just like Nathan called David on his sin. So um, that kind of wisdom is not what Adonijah was seeking for, was he? He sought the kind of wisdom that came from people who would get on board with his plan and his agenda. So in other words, he just wanted yes men in his world. And that's what he, that's what he got. So in this, I'm going to show you how there is a flow of thought in this particular chapter and the next one that shows wisdom, real wisdom that's going on in here. The, first, the next paragraph, uh, or two or three, is the wisdom of Nathan. We're looking at the wisdom of Nathan here. You might want to make yourself a note. 
just that, that this is one of the things that I'm looking at, the wisdom of Nathan. And how we see that play, playing out, that's a, kind of a sub-theme that's running through on so, how Solomon is anointed king. He had people in his, in his world who had wisdom okay, and protected him. Okay, 11 to 14, what's going on? Yeah, so Nathan counsels Bathsheba. Right? He gives wise counsel to do what? What was his end goal in, when, in his going into her and informing her of this? That's right. The end goal for Nathan was to make sure Solomon secured the throne. That was his goal. Now, why, is that, why do I call that a wisdom point for Nathan? He knew what God had already declared. And so he was doing what? Getting on board with God. I would say in this chapter, that is one of the life lessons you and I should probably contemplate. Are you on board with God? Do you know the decrees of God? Do you know the laws of God? Do you know the, the heart of God? And, with that, and if you say yes to all those things, then in your personal life, are you on board to support his agenda? to put, push his agenda through, to see his agenda, agenda accomplished. Nathan is doing that. And that's what I saw in this little tiny chapter here, this little tiny paragraph. Do you remember there was a timeline between David proclaiming that Solomon was going to be king and then Ruth too? No. Do you? Did you look it up? No. Does anybody? Yeah, I don't know all the timeline. And one of the things that Kay actually says in her, in her notes to me as a teacher is, a lot of this timelining is really difficult to completely line up. And she says, don't get wrapped around that. Just try to look at the bigger general picture of, for instance, what I gave you over here. We know the order of the birth of sons. It's very general. I don't know how long between. I don't know how old one boy was versus the next. I know they had different mothers. That's a bigger general picture. That's all we need to know. And it, when we look at... at what happened when and what order, all we need to do is get it in the right order. Because certain events occurred first, and they're foundational, correct? Information, they're necessary information. So that when you go to the next part of the story where we are right now in First Kings, we now know why First Kings, the things that are being said in here and shown to us, are significant. Otherwise, you might just want to drop into First Kings and go, well, so what? Right? You're not totally get, getting it. But now that you know that God had already declared that Solomon was to be king and it had been proclaimed throughout the whole nation, they all knew it. Now, does it make a difference when you look at Adonijah that he is, was trying to usurp that throne for himself, take it for himself? Absolutely. Just to put it in a general context, uh huh. Yes. 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 Right. And the best way for you to get those insights, Celeste, would be to go back and read First and Second Samuel. 
and it's a time-consuming event because I tried it this week. <laughs> I thought I could whip through 2 Samuel no problem, but I found myself getting stuck because with every, every piece of the story as I was moving through first, uh, 2 Samuel, I was trying to link it back to what I was looking at in 1 Kings, and, it's, and it would slow me down because I would go back and I would look and I would try to compare names. Names are difficult to pronounce and, and keep in your head, and, I, and anything that starts with an A... I had to go and figure out which A it was, <laughs> you know? Are you seeing what I'm saying? Okay. So, and, and that's why this list over here is going to become real valuable to us. The key people, once you get certain points on them, it's going to be helpful. So we want to try to get to those real quick here. So let's move along. From 11 to 14, we see Nathan counsels Bathsheba. And then 15 to 21, that's the wisdom of Nathan. He does this counseling to secure Solomon's throne. What happens in 15 to 21 then? What does Bathsheba do with that information? She goes to tell David. Okay, it can, okay, and I get it why you might say the word passive-aggressive, but I would rather like to say the word diplomatic. There is a diplomatic way to handle a king. Okay. Who, who's the big guy on campus? David. Are you going to go into David and say, David, what are you doing? Why are you not handling this? What is going on here? Don't you know that you're allowing something to happen that God has already declared and you're, going, you're allowing it to go again? I mean, you wouldn't want to rebuke him, right? So instead what they're doing is more stealth. It's more diplomatic. It's more gentle. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Right. You know what's very interesting is Adonijah sends her in there later in the next chapter, right? He has no regard for Bathsheba's life either, does he? But no, it's not his mother. That's true. But still, he has no concern. Right. But Adonijah says, "Go in there and ask for for him to Solomon." Same. They have the same kingship as kingship. Remember, they demanded to have a king like the rest of the world. And so the protocol of it is standardized. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so uh, 22 to 27. The next part is, so Bathsheba informs David of Adonijah's action and its peril to her and her son Solomon, Right. Specifically, that's what she, what she addresses is the idea that this is perilous, uh, a perilous situation, which might address or answer the reason why she's why she was who was it? I was to, oh, it was Lisa. It might be the reason why she was able to be so brave to go into him. She was going to die anyway if she didn't go into to David even unannounced. Adonijah was going to kill her and her son at the first opportunity, so she was a dead woman anyway. So she goes in.
I'm going to die one way or the other. I might as well die standing up and taking a chance to save my life, and particularly my son's life, right? Exactly. Okay, so 22 to 27 is the next part. Now what happens after Bathsheba has gone in? Now Nathan follows up, and this was the part that you, like you said, Celeste, seems a little passive-aggressive, but it was really very, this was wisdom at its finest, and that's why I titled this The Wisdom of Nathan. He set it up so that he himself could also come into the presence of the king, and he came on, quote, urgent business, which would be the one thing, the catalyst, which would get him in to see the king without being called for. And so he is able to go in, too, because he has urgent message. And the urgent message, Bathsheba has already set up for him so that when he comes in, she goes in, I'm going to die whether, you know, if, if I don't do this, I'm going to die for sure. So I'll go in, I'll take the chance, and she does it. Then Nathan follows behind, and her having paved the way and already set the information in David's mind gave him the ability to, this is urgent, and then he's not also in trouble. <laughs> so 22 to 27 is Nathan also informs David. There you go. That's exactly right. You could definitely expound on your information in this and however you you know how much information you want to put in your titles is is fine it's just after a while it can get rather lengthy but yeah I added to mine after I put Nathan also informs David confirming Bathsheba's report using wisdom he he did it very wisely in a very wise way the way that he handled that okay now the next part of this after the wisdom of Nathan we enter into a part where we see the the wisdom of David yes he does the wisdom of David is seen in this so you can see this flow of theme of the subject of wisdom that's going on in here right okay 28 to 31 Yeah, David, David, he does something. It's not just a promise, but what, what, had he already promised this to her? So he's reaffirming his vow to her. He is repeating what he has already promised previously. So I'm just going to put on here, David affirms his vow. Okay, that Solomon shall be king. Right, you can go on and add all that in there if you want to. 32 to 37, so after he affirms his vow to Bathsheba, so he makes sure Bathsheba knows her life is safe because he's going to take care of business, right? Yes, Glenn? Yes, he absolutely does. That is exactly what the next part is. So David then gives orders, doesn't he? about Solomon, that Solomon is to be anointed, and he goes into great detail. He says, not only do I want him to be anointed, not just one day, but now. And he says, and on top of that, what else does he want him to do? Now, was that significant, Diane? Why is that significant? Mm -hmm. If it's going to be a white donkey, if it's going to be war, it is a 
That's right. And even the ornamental decorations that are put on the animal that's rode and the garments that, the, that he uh, wears makes a difference. Did you notice in some of the storyline it says that he wore his full uniform of this or that? Because how you dress for the affair matters. Have you ever, I, I've always thought about this, you know, when my kids were growing up, I always taught them, this is in the days when you never entered the church without your dress. You, know, you wore a dress. And I'd always say, you dress appropriately for the occasion. When you go to school, you wear your school clothes. When you get home, you can put on your sweatpants and your shorts. But you don't wear your sweatpants and your shorts to school, honey. You put on a pair of jeans and a nice T-shirt, and you go to school appropriate. And this, to me, is kind of the demonstration of that, that you see it throughout all of history. Men wore appropriate clothing for certain things. And in here, he is really carefully dictating. I want him to ride this horse, and I want him to have this kind of a ceremony and I want this, these certain things in place. And the purpose for that is with Solomon, as opposed to what Abon, uh, Adonijah did, Solomon is going to have an actual, official, and, and appropriate coronation. His is going to be called a coronation. All right? Yes, he did. <laughs> 32 to 37. So David, he, and the difference here is he gives orders. He makes sure that it's going to get done. He gives orders for Solomon to be anointed. And also seated on the throne. That was another part of it. 38 to 40 then, what do we see? And it's a public rejoicing as opposed to Adonijah's selective community call where he selected certain people who were yes men that would get on board with him that would would that would be willing to defy the the will and the decree of God himself but in this case it's an open ceremony it's done through proper channels it's done with all the the what do they call the pomp and circumstance of of a true coronation and it's done publicly so that all the people see it and the people rejoice. How loud is it when they give their rejoicing? The earth shook. It talked about it displacing. The, the noise was so loud that it caused the earth to, to literally shake and split. All right. Now, the last part of this is another section on wisdom again. Here, what do we see? Who's wisdom? Who is our next subject that comes up? Adonijah doing, and he's, and he's working with who? Does Adonijah have wisdom? No. no. So who's the other person in the subject line? Solomon. Solomon. Sol yes, because Joab would not be a guy of wisdom either, would he? But it's Solomon. So we're going to look at here the wisdom. Um, I'm going to actually add in another thing. Wisdom and grace of Solomon. He, he extends grace in this section of this, right? So let's look at 41 to 48, and what do we see happening there? What happens right off the bat? Who's informed of what? Okay, so Adonijah is informed of Solomon's anointing and the coronation, right? Actually, he even hears it for himself. And then the next paragraph, 49 to 53, tells us what? What does Adonijah do in response to that news? He is running in fear. 
his tail between his legs, and he goes where? He goes to the altar and, and holds on to the horns of the altar. Can someone explain that? Okay, because what was the altar and the horns of the altar symbolic of for the people of Israel? A, place, a sanctuary and? That's where the sacrifices were given, so it was a place of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Pardon? No, that's in the, in, they wouldn't go there. He's going into the altar outside. But the, remember, the coals or the ashes from the altar are carried in onto the mercy seat. So symbolically, they're connected. And symbolically, him going and holding on to the horns of that altar. And we see it more than once in, this, in these first couple of chapters. When they go and hold on to the horns of the altar, it's an act of, of uh, desiring mercy because they know they're guilty. They're a fugitive. They're looking for grace. And what does Solomon do? He extends grace. Now, when you first look at this, you think, why does he not put him to death? Right? This guy has come against the throne. Can he be trusted? Can he? But, but what is the wisdom that you see here with Solomon in handling this is how he, he gives, first and foremost, he gives the guy a second chance. He gives grace. And so, but what kind of grace? Measured, Measured or conditional. He gives him a, a conditional pardon, if you wish. And it's a temporary one, but it's conditional. Conditional upon what? Solomon has got, or Adonijah has got to behave himself. He cannot be aggressive or seek after the throne ever again. And if he does, death. Okay, so here we go. Boy, does that not set up the next chapter or what? So 41 to 48 is Adonijah is informed. Yes. And then we're going to put 49 to 53 is Adonijah is terrified and Solomon grants conditional pardon. Did you say that that's a sanctuary in terms of what we see today in that sanctuary? Yes. Yes. Um, I would say no because the, the ones in the sanctuary city are not citizens. Would, would I be correct on that? Yeah, okay. That, that's how I would. So this is for, and this is also for the guilty. They're actually confessing their guilt and going for mercy. Uh, the sanctuary cities that we have today in America, we're calling them sanctuary cities. They're not confessing that they're guilty at all. They think they have a right to be here and that they should have the same judicial process as a citizen, which they don't qualify for. Yeah.
Wow. And is that speaking about the end times then? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, God has his limits. And when he hits his limits, then it's time that God judges. And I do think there's a, I think there's principles in here. We're not quite there, but we're going to talk about that. The, the reality of the necessity for uh, righteous judgment. Why is it so necessary to actually take action at some point? How long can you be permissive and full of grace? towards people. How much grace do you extend? Now, we know in the New Testament it talks about turning the other cheek and 70 times 7 and so forth, but you have to make the right application for the right things, right? And so hold on to that. Let's, let's get through this Second Kings theme first and try to get some of these chapter titles in. The title for chapter 2 then, how did you come up on that? Yeah, the kingdom is established. So Solomon's kingdom. And if you wanted to say firmly, you can do that. Ah, uh, yes, he cleans house. That's really good. Good one, Donna. <laughs> okay, here's very interesting. Because what you see, what is going on when you open up the second chapter? What, what's going on with David? What, how, do, how do they, what's the impression that you get about what's going on here with David and the things he's saying to Solomon? Okay, Martha, say it again. There you go. Parting words and passing of the mantle. Now, is this from father to son or king to king? This is king to king. You guys have to get that because if you miss that part of this, you will miss the nuances of the things that he is saying in here. And I got to tell you some of the commentary things that I looked at as we were going through this um, were off base, I think, a little bit. David's, this is King David's advice to his successor. That's what's going on here. His counsel is number one, rule in obedience to God's law. And number two, exercise godly wisdom and self-controlled strength as a king, right? So you could, all kinds of words kind of conjured up for me. Godliness, discernment, grace when possible, but also strategic political skill is necessary. And so he shows that, and, he, and, he, and as he is passing the mantle, as you said, um, he's doing so by showing him or giving him examples of things that are currently going on that he needs to deal with, and he's giving him kind of a, a, a broad brush stroke on how to handle these kinds of situations. He's not being, I don't think that he is just saying specifically, go do this, go do this, go do this, and then you're done. He's saying, watch out for, this is how you should and don't forget to, right? So let's look at those together as we do the titling. Paragraphs. Now, this one is, I'm going to title this one to keep our theme going about um, the wisdom. We started out um, the wisdom of Nathan. We looked at the wisdom of David, and we've looked at the wisdom uh, and grace of Solomon at the close of chapter 1. Now we're here, we're looking at the wisdom of a dying king. This is just how I kind of broke this down in my mind. It was just a sub, 
subject that's kind of going on in here, but I think that it's, it's really cool when you look at it through this prism. Okay, so one to four, we see David charging Solomon to do what? Yeah. I'm going to simplify it. Keep God's law, right? Keep God's laws or law or however you want to expound on that. All right, so that's the first thing he says, and we're, we could spend a lot of time in that one, but we're not going to do that because it's very declarative, very straightforward. Simply keep the laws of God. That's the very, as a king, now he's, yes, individually you need to do this as well, but he's saying, look, king to king, I'm telling you as a king, keep God's laws. That's what God wants of his, of his leaders of his nation. Now, when you and I take this forward, to the church today, and if we equate the church and the, and the kingdom as being similar, and the leader of as a king of a nation and equating it then to um, our pastors today, what is it that we see then as being declared to our pastors, our leaders for the church? What is he ultimately saying to them? Keep God's laws. <laughs> Would you say that most of our churches in America today are keeping God's laws or have they moved into humanistic thinking? Have they gone from the kind of wisdom which is pure and from above or are they working on operating off of their own personal experiences and pressures of the world's standards and values? Right? There's a whole other subject we could spend a lot of time talking on. And I think we're all going to end up in, the, in agreement on it. We need to hold our pastors and our leaders' feet to the fire and make sure that they are leading according to God's laws. Don't make up the laws the way you want. Don't interpret the scriptures the way you want. What does God say on these subjects? And you stick with it and you, and you enforce it in your church, right? Okay, enough on that one. Let's move to the next one, five and six. What has been, what does he do? Now, he, I want you to try to look beyond the names of the people he's using and say, in principle, what is he saying? What is the wisdom that he is passing on to Solomon here in verses 5 and 6? Pardon, say it again. Okay, how to deal with man in general. But in this case here, in 5 and 6, what was the uh, uh, egregious okay let, let me just read it now you also know that Joab the son of Zariah did to me what he did to the two commanders what's the subject matter here what did he do to the two commanders he murdered them right he killed them um, to Abner, the son of Ner, and to Amasa, the, the son of Jether whom he killed he also shed blood when in peace. He shed the blood of war in peace. He put the blood of war on his belt, around his waist, and on his sandals, and on his feet. So, this is what I'm telling you to do now as a king. When you have these scenarios, not just this one event, but when you have a person who has shed blood in an unrighteous manner, and it's murder, not war, and, and interesting, this defines the difference between murder and war, by the way, right? If you're in time of war, to kill someone is not murder. 
it's war and, and, and it's acceptable, but the, it has to be under that sanction that you're in war. Here he's saying, according to your wisdom, then do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. So what is he saying, don't let his gray hair go down in peace? He's saying deal with this kind of infraction. If someone has unjustly murdered someone else, you must deal with it. Why? In principle, what happens when blood is shed in an unrighteous manner on the land that God has given to his people? It, it curses the land. And later we're going to see where, where he talks about how the curse even falls upon the family itself. Until what? Until it's avenged, until it's appeased, until it's atoned for, correct? And in this case, the atonement is going to come how? If a man sheds a man's blood, what should happen to him? Death. The, oh, it, is, it, is, it is a system that says if you take life, we will take your life. If you take life unjustly, unrighteously, in, a, in an aggressive manner in which he did, he said then it must be atoned for. So... In principle, then, he's saying to him about bloodshed on the land as a king, when you know someone has murdered someone, what? You, are to, you, you do not let that bloodshed go unpunished. Now, how that gets dealt with is what, is what happened here and what did not. So let's put this, don't let unjust bloodshed go unpunished. Now, when you look at that from a broader perspective as a king to a king, is that a good principle for him to keep in mind as he leads this nation that he's about to take possession of? His dad's about to die. The king is about to die, and he's giving him the mantle. And he's saying, as a king, do not let unjust bloodshed go unpunished because it is what's going to happen. The... Then would you please not ask me questions I can't answer? Go ahead. Say it again. Okay. Hold on to that, though, because we're going to get there, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. Joab unjustly, without David's knowing, assassinated Abner and Amasa, right? And he but he, this is what's interesting. How, what did Joab do? He cloaked it as if what? Uh, well, well, yeah, he did. That's how he killed them. But, but what did he cloak it in as far as his motives? What, did he, he, what was the appearance that he gave? That he was protecting who? Oh, that was the ulterior motive. That was the heart of the real issue for Joab. And that's what David knew. But what did Joab present to the people and even to David when he challenged David on this? That he was protecting who? David and the kingdom. So he gave a false appearance. I'm going to kill this guy. Whom he kills him. He walks away and he says, I did that for David. I did that because of David. So what do you think his army, if, if, this, if this is the appearance that they accepted, and I do think it is, what do you think his army now thinks if, if David just turns around and kills Joab for having done that? Is he going to have a revolt from his army? Yeah. 
Aha! So can you see now the wisdom in David not handling it right away in that manner? Instead, what does is, what is Joab do? <laughs> okay, listen, let me just read some of my little notes here because I had to think this one through hard in order to say what was going on here really. Being a political wife has helped me a little bit. Being a military wife has helped me because I know a little bit about military and the nuances and the appearance of things. And when you have a general or a leader... And it looks like one of his subordinates has protected his position. And then you turn around and discipline him. You are going to have every man on, in, in your realm now against you. They're going to be mad at you. You are going to have very unhappy soldiers, right? So David has to be careful. He had, David knows that Joab had ulterior motives. He understood that. So his wisdom was there, but he had to be careful. So Joab's just penalty must be handled with skill in a manner that will be acceptable to the army. So Solomon is to wait. This is his instructions here. Wait for the appropriate time and manner. Did you notice the word wisdom is used in here? Um, we're in, um, what verses are we in? We're in five and six. Okay, he says, so act according to your wisdom. Basically, he's saying be stealth. Use di diplomacy. Watch and wait for the right opportunity because guess what? This man's character and this man's temperament, it's going to come back around and something else is going to happen. And when it does, use that opportunity to come down on him. Don't do it right now, but you've got to wait. And so he's saying, you, do you see where the wisdom really prevails in the subject line of this particular story? Solomon is to wait for the appropriate time and manner, which David is certain will present itself in time, given Joab's proven temperament and character. And so we went back and we looked in 2 Samuel 3 uh, about Amasa, you know, what happened with him. We looked at 2 Samuel 20. Both of those were on day, on day 5. And in looking at that, what, what kind of a man, what kind of character, if you had to do a character list on Joab, what would you say about him? Yeah, okay, maybe he's or at least at least uh, they're all peas in a pod. They're all similar. They have similar characters. Even his other brothers. What kind of the one brother who killed Abner? Um, what did Abner attempt to do? He tried to appease him, right? He tried to say, look, take, the, take a spoil from one of these other men and then be on your way. If, he did not want to start basically a family feud between Abner's house and his house. So he tried to appease him, but would he be appeased? So what kind of a character does this man have? He was a vengeful man, and he wanted also, I think, a little pr uh, power and prestige for killing Abner. Okay, so I think they were that they, their character really comes through. But he basically was murderous. His attempt, his desire was to kill Abner. Okay, so Abner killed him, and he did so. I thought it was interesting. He turned his sword around and used the butt of his sword. I want. I betcha there's something about that that has to do with the idea of war and the idea of self-defense or something. I, did, I didn't get time to research it, didn't anybody? I bet you. How much would I bet there's some? There's, because that point is brought out, there's a reason for it in there. And I think it just shows you Abner's desire versus this, the, the, this man's desire. So he's killed. And then Joab, what, what does he do when he kills the other guy? 
when he kills, uh, Ab when, okay, that was when he killed Amasa. When he kills him, what does he do? Oops, I dropped my sword. <laughs> Picks it up, goes over, grabs him by the beard to give him a kiss, and then stabs him, kills him, right? So what kind of a man is Joab? Same thing, murderous and vengeful and cold-hearted, coming in, pretending to come, pretending to come in peace, pretending to be his friend, and then stabbing him not in the back but in the belly, right? And he dies. Okay, so this gives you a little bit of insight about these men. So David is saying, don't let unjust bloodshed go unpunished. Wait and watch for the appropriate opportunity. Use your wisdom, be, be alert, be careful, beware. So that's how he starts even the next verse, in verse, that verse 8, where he says in 8 and 9. What's the very first word? Oh, I forgot to do 7. We know 7. Seven's a good one. Show what? Show kindness to those who do what? To those who support who? support the king and the kingdom, right? Those who are on God's side. Now, 8 and 9, the very first word is? Behold. Now, interesting word. What do you think that is saying? Be careful. Be on the alert. Beware. Watch out. Be, be attentive to, right? Pay attention. Behold, for what kind of men? What kind of men are described in verses 8 and 9? Men who are willing to curse the king's anointed, right? Men who have basically dangerous character. He's speaking about a man who, who Shimei, behold, there is with you Shimei of the, this other town. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to uh, Mahanaim, but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, we went back and looked at that. Why do you think David did not put him to death at that point, even though he was worthy of it? And at the time also, there was another reference we went to and looked at. What was another reason why he said, no, he didn't want to do it at that time? Because what was going on in that moment? He was, he was taking his position as a king. It was a day of rejoicing. It was a day of thanksgiving to God. And he did not want to do what on that day? Spread, shed the blood of someone, right? So he had already been given the victory, so he wanted to glory in God's glory of what God had done in his life. And he did not want to spoil that day with this kind of, a, of an action. And so he delayed it. He put it on hold. Because although Shimei had aggressively come against him, he hadn't taken his life. And it was a personal affront against him personally, more so than anything else. And so it was very interesting. He, again, show, David shows grace. He shows restraint. He shows strength. And he does so for the purpose of honoring God and what God had done on that day. 
okay? So he put God above himself. He didn't want to make that day about him and taking revenge. But he put it on, but just because David didn't handle Shimei in that moment, does that mean that David was clueless about Shimei's character? Do you think he always kept an eye on him throughout from that point forward? Everything he did with Shimei, he had in the back of his mind what Shimei had done in that day. Okay, so that's another point. So eight and nine is be alert for men of dangerous character. And then in 10 to 12, we see David dies, right? Then in 13 to 18, we see Adonijah show up again. And now what does he do? He... He again comes after the throne, even though he promised by an oath that he would not, correct? So now, although David had given Adonijah a conditional pardon back before, now when Adonijah comes, what happens is I think is very interesting. Verse 19 to 22, to me at first it was kind of a mystery, but all of a sudden what I think is shown right here is this is an aha moment for, Dave, for uh, Solomon. Solomon now recognizes that his enemies must be dealt with. David had given grace. Solomon wants to give grace. He wants to be like his daddy. He already showed that with Adonijah, how he gave him a conditional pardon. He did very much the same thing that his dad had done before, trying to be, show grace to people, give them a second chance, right? But now when Adonijah comes back again and tries to do this again, we already now know what the setup is. He's trying to get the concubine, take it for a wife. It's, an, it's a ploy to, to come in and take the throne. So he recognizes it. And not only does he recognize Adonijah as a problem, but in that same breath, he lists all of his enemies that he must deal with. Right? He says, well, gee, if, you're gonna, if we're going to do this mother, if we're going to give him um, uh, Abby... Abishag, right? Why not just go ahead um, and give him also Abathar and Joab? Give him a full cabinet. Just give him all that he needs to run the nation, right? And it's at that moment, I think he has a moment of clarity. So here's his wisdom really kicking in. So I titled this part, um, Solomon Shows Mercy Goes. Um, is this page two or page one? Oh, I'm looking at Solomon's kingly wisdom. That's where I'm at. Starting with verse 23 all the way to, the, to uh, 35, we're seeing Solomon's kingly wisdom. Adonijah then is what happens to him. What happens in 23 to 25? He's put to death. 26 and 27, what happens with the uh, Abathar? He is dismissed as the priest. Sorry, you're out of here. No longer, you don't have that position. 28 to 34, what happens to Joab? He does. He Right, but he is, ultimately he is, this time, put to death. Remember what his dad had said? Wait and watch. Do not let the bloodshed that's been, that is unrighteously shed, don't let that go unpunished. Did Joab actually present another opportunity? Yes, he did. Daddy knew he would. Just give him time. He'll hang himself. Give him enough rope, right? So here we see Joab is put to death. In verse 35 then, what does Solomon now do? He appoints his, his new cabinet. 
something we're real familiar with right now in history. We're waiting for our, our commander-in-chief to have his own new cabinet. Why? Because what's wrong with the old cabinet that you're trying to work with? They are against you. They are trying to hang you and trip you up at every turn and move. And it's necessary to clean house when you come in as a king and get, get the people on board with you that you know are going to support you. So that's what happened. Then 36 to 38, Solomon shows wisdom and mercy, this time again now with Shimei. And with Shimei, what does he give him? He gives him again a conditional pardon, right? You get to, it's just exactly what he had already done with Adonijah. Gave him a conditional pardon, but, he, but Adonijah broke it. What does it, uh, Shimei do in the next uh, paragraph, 39 to 46? Shimei acts foolishly and he is put to death. And it's for his own foolish actions. All he had to do was stay in that city and, and keep his word. He gave an oath and he broke it. And he swore, he did. So his oath was before God. And Solomon was very clear to him what would happen if he did not. Okay, so to close this out today, then, you, what, what I think we're seeing is wisdom, wisdom, wisdom at every turn on this. We're seeing the political structure that's being set up here. We're seeing the flow of thought. We're getting a glimpse at some of these people. We did not get to do our people's part. So it's on my chart. You did it in your homework. I would recommend that you do what I have done on this sheet, which you will get, but identify good and bad. I think a good, it could be that you draw hard on it and color it dark or, or light, either red or black or however you want to do it to indicate are they good guys or bad guys. Because I do think that is a good, quick way with the eye to look at that person. Oh, Shemia, he's a bad guy. You know, just look at it real quick, you know it, right? And that's what you and I want to be able to do because we've we got a lot of names and people that are hard to keep straight in our head because their names are so difficult to pronounce, for one thing. Also, here, again, a word of exhortation, you guys. We're just getting started. We're just getting our feet wet. Do not expect that you know all the details and all the background. It'll all, it'll all begin to build on itself. Week by week, you'll get a little bit more and a little bit more. Don't you already feel like you've got your boundaries down a bit better at this point? Okay, so good job. Nice.